Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors podcast series. I'm Amanda White, Director of Institutional Content at Connexus Financial and editor of top1000funds.com. I'm joined today by Janine Gilliot, Chief Executive of the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Janine has been at SASB since 2015 and was previously the Director of Capital Markets Policy and Outreach, where she was instrumental in bringing investors and asset managers to SASB and involving them in the market standards for ESG disclosure. Janine has had 25 years of experience in operations, strategy, risk management and finance roles in financial services. She was the Chief Operating Investment Officer at Cowpers for three years, where she was responsible for the investment office business and operational management, as well as the fund's corporate governance program. She's also held senior investment operations roles at Barclays and Bank of America, and Janine currently serves on the Senior Advisory Board at the Centre for Responsible Business at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Welcome, Janine. Thank you, Amanda. It's good to be here. So, Janine, you, you live in San Francisco. Uh, several counties in the Bay Area have ordered shelter-in-place orders. What's that like? How's the mood there? Yeah, so I think I think the mood's as positive as can be expected. Uh, people who can work from home are productively working from home, and there's a real spirit of we're all in this together. But at the same time, you know, there's real concern for people who don't have the ability to work from home and whose incomes are taking a real hit. So there's the question about what the short and long-term economic implications of this will be and a lot of unknowns about how long it's going to last. So um, there's definitely some significant concern. Yes, as you say, these are certainly unprecedented times and and as you mentioned, you know, most organisations now have staff working remotely and need to figure out new ways of, of doing business. You've spent much of your career dealing with operational management, no, most notably at, at CalPERS. What's your advice for asset owners and managers in, in terms of how they can communicate internally and externally and pivot their business for effective decision making in times like this? Yeah, so I think one thing is we're really lucky to have the technology that we have today. I can't imagine if we were dealing with this uh, 10 years ago or even even five years ago. Um, so relatively low-cost video technology is available today, and my big suggestion is to use it. What we've seen over the last week with our team is a huge difference in the quality of interaction, whether we are trying to use video technology or audio technology. Uh, so I think video technology is, is really important in t- these kinds of times. Uh, I think it's also really important to have significantly more discipline about projects and deliverables and what goals are people trying to achieve and more frequent check-ins around how the teams are working together. So, you know, for instance, we've moved to a weekly, weekly video all hands uh, to really keep the team connected. I think that that connection is important as we um, have this physical distancing. I've stopped using the word social distancing. I think physical distancing is a, a better term. You know, we want to we want to stay connected, as you say. Absolutely, absolutely, and I like that physical distancing instead of social distancing because the social connections are still very, very important. Absolutely. So let's have a have a chat about SASB. Uh, you had a nice call out from BlackRock's Larry Fink in his annual letter this year. You must have been pleased with that uh, coverage. 
Yeah, so we were very pleased. Um, we think the recognition from BlackRock is very important public recognition of SASB and its value to investors. But it's really important that everyone understand that BlackRock's recognition isn't just BlackRock. It really reflects the depth and breadth of investor support for SASB. And BlackRock wouldn't have recognized SASB with that, like that without confidence that SASB had a broad base of investor support. And that reflects the fact that the SASB standards are uniquely designed to meet the needs of investors because of our focus on financial materiality and the focus on industry-specific disclosure standards and metrics. So we'll talk a little bit about that in a little while, but but first I want to just talk to you about purposeful companies. There's been a broad call for corporations and investors to embrace these new models of stakeholder capitalism and incorporate a wider range of considerations into investment criteria beyond just financial metrics or shareholder uh, priorities. So what are your ideas for how we turn this into reality? I think the first thing when we talk about stakeholder capitalism, I think we need to be very clear about defining what we mean. And I think there are actually two different models of stakeholder capitalism at play in different regions of the world. And and I think it's important to understand that. And, and, the, and it really does, at the end of the day, What's the ultimate legal accountability of boards of directors? So I would say there's one model of stakeholder capitalism, which is managing stakeholder issues effectively because of a belief that managing those stakeholder issues effectively is essential to delivering long-term shareholder returns. But that the in that model, the board legal accountability is still to shareholders. So so that's that is one model of the world. I would say that is broadly the way people are thinking about this in the U.S. context. And then another model of stakeholder capitalism is managing stakeholder issues effectively because the board of directors is legally accountable to multiple stakeholders. So that I would say is a more common model in Europe. Now the key question is, does it really matter? Do those two models get you different decisions? And I think in most of the time you will get similar decisions coming out of those two models because in both of them, you're very focused on managing effectively managing stakeholder relationships. But I think there could be situations where you'd get slightly different decisions. And so I do think it's really important that when we talk about stakeholder capitalism, we are very, very clear about what we mean when we use that term. And I think the conversation's getting a little confused today because different people are using that term differently. So SASB is taking a leadership position in transparency and disclosure is this is there a role for SASB in in defining of what stakeholder capitalism looks like and and actually having some definitions around it for corporates and, and investors to use I wouldn't really see that as SASB's role. I think at the end of the day, that's a role for policymakers, uh, uh, lawyers and regulators. But what I do think SASB's role is, is to provide a very 
useful tool to inform decision-making in either of those models. Um, and particularly, SASB adds value if a either an investor or a company wants to understand how stakeholder issues are likely to impact financial performance. And so SASB is a tool to understand what issues need to be managed, which groups of stakeholders have the most potential to impact financial performance. So the British Academy has put out a meaningful piece of work on purposeful companies. Uh, For those who haven't seen it, it's called Principles for Purposeful Business, How to Deliver the Framework for the Future of the Corporation. As part of this, they suggest a reformulation of corporate purpose. So what, what do you think is the paradigm shift needed to redefine business for the 21st century and build trust between business and society, which is clearly needed? I think the thing that's most crucial to rebuild trust between business and society is for businesses to measure, manage, disclose, and ultimately reward performance on environmental and social issues as rigorously as they measure, manage, disclose, and reward performance on financial issues. I think that is the key lever that would help reestablish trust between business and society. And how likely is that to, to, to happen and in what sort of time frame are we talking I think it's very likely to happen. I I often talk about the last couple of weeks of January as a couple of weeks that rocked the world around sustainability disclosure. Um, And part of that is that you had several things happen in the last couple of weeks of January that demonstrated that sustainability disclosure is now at the top of the agendas of the world's largest investors the world's largest companies and regulators in significant markets. And those three things are the BlackRock and State Street letters calling for a better disclosure around sustainability issues or in BlackRock's exact words, SASB and TCFD aligned disclosure. You also had through the World Economic Forum, International Business Council released a report from some of the world's largest CEOs talking about establishing common metrics for sustainability performance. And then the European Union announced plans to revise its non-financial reporting directive. So those are three very important signals that sustainability, whether you call it sustainability or ESG disclosure, has now risen to the top of the global policy agenda. I agree with you. It looked like 2020 was the year that business and, and the investing world finally got the urgent need to incorporate sustainability and um, and, and sort of certainly Davos in January was a, a peak of that, I, I think, in terms of uh, a message to the world. And then unfortunately this uh, unforgettable health pandemic set in. So how can we ensure that sustainability stays front and centre for the investing community and and ride this um, sort of idea of it being front and centre, you know, has been so far this year and, and then unfortunately has been interrupted. I think it's a risk. I think I think the immediate priority, of course, has to be to deal with the immediate health crisis and the economic fallout 
from the immediate health crisis. But I think the, the long-term trends aren't going to change, which is, and I think the pandemic is demonstrating this, that risks to global, the global economy and to companies and to investors emerge very, very rapidly from unexpected places. And many of those types of risks are what we would call environmental and social risks or sustainability risks. So I think that long-term trend is still very, very true. And I think that as a result, I think both businesses and investors over the long term will continue to, to focus on we need to measure and manage and disclose our environmental and social risks and opportunities. I mean, all, it, the, the flip side of risk is always opportunity. So what are the business opportunities that come out of long term environmental and social trends? Yeah, one of the things I've been thinking about, I don't know if you have any comments, is, you know, when events like this occur, does it, is it actually a catalyst for reformulating how we view risk? Um, and, you know, the investing world obviously is very backward looking in, in its risk tools. Are there ways that we can use this as an opportunity to, to change the way risk is, is calculated and, and maybe have some more forward looking analysis? Yeah, so we always said, and you know, as you know from when we did the investment beliefs at CalPERS, one of the investment beliefs at CalPERS is that risk is more multifaceted than volatility, and it involves risk. Risk um, includes topics that evolve over a very long time horizon, like climate. And so, I definitely, at the root of one reason I joined SASB, was an interest in what are information sources that give you or give an investor more forward-looking insight into risk. And I believe that the environmental and social metrics on performance on environmental and social issues give investors more forward-looking insight into risk. So I, I absolutely think you're right, Amanda, about what we need a broader tool set to think about and measure risk that is more forward-looking than some of our historical tools. So Janine, let's have a little chat about SASB. Um, it was formed to set market standards for disclosure of sustainability information and focus specifically on identifying sustainability topics and metrics that are material. And as you mentioned, material is defined as likely to affect financial performance, which I think is an important uh, distinction. But they also focus on being decision useful and cost effective to use. Can you give us a feel for how these standards are being used by asset owners and managers and corporates and the benefits to portfolios of doing so? So most asset managers and, and asset owners who use SASB use it to provide rigor and structure to their ESG integration efforts. So you know that many investment managers are now committed to integrating ESG into investment decision-making because they believe that ESG factors will drive long-term risk or long-term return. Where many people are challenged is then, well, how do we actually do that? 
And the SASB standards provide a very useful tool because they identify the issues that are most likely to impact financial performance in each of 77 industries. So the earliest users of the SASB standards were fundamental active either equity or credit managers who are naturally organized into sector teams where sector analysts would then use the SASB standards to help them think about which ESG issues they should evaluate at portfolio companies. We're seeing broader and broader uses of the SASB standards over time, Uh, increasingly quantitative managers who are interested in using the SASB standards in quantitative strategies or perhaps in index construction. And then I think the, the ultimate use is more portfolio level or uh, total fund level about can the standards provide insight into concentrations of risk at an overall fund level. Uh, So we're seeing the use of the standards evolve over time, but I'd say by far the most common use today is at a portfolio company level to evaluate the issues that should be reviewed, the, the ESG issues that you should be assessed to evaluate impact on financial performance. And that's sometimes a portfolio manager, sometimes it's a stewardship team who's who's looking for guidance about which issues they should engage companies on. There's an incredible number of data providers now in the ESG world, and clearly SASB's got a, a, a role to play there. What's your advice for asset owners in particular on how to navigate the different providers and, and what they offer and how to how they complement each other and, and how to use them to most effect. So I think the first thing that's important for any asset owner to understand is broadly the difference between an underlying standard setter and a data provider. And so SASB sets standards for disclosure by companies to their investors. So our goal and our belief is that if you set standards for disclosure, just like we have financial accounting standards, companies to disclose then disclose to those standards, that results in higher quality information be, being available in the public domain. And then that information can then be sourced by data providers or ratings providers or analytics providers. So I think that's the first thing for asset owners and companies to understand understand because those two concepts sometimes get confused. The second step, I think, then, is if you're an asset owner and you are hiring a data provider or a ratings provider, is to really kick the tires on methodology. So what is the methodology they're using in order to reach their decisions about performance? And then what underlying data sources that 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 data provider or ratings provider is using? How are they comfortable? They've got a complete population of data, um, how do they ensure consistency of metrics across companies, really to kick the tires at a a fairly granular level on both methodology and underlying data. What we're increasingly seeing is that investment managers and some asset owners use the SASB standards to create proprietary ESG scores 
and, and the reason they do that is they then have complete transparency into what issues are ultimately driving as an ESG rating. And so we're increasingly seeing that trend in the marketplace. You must be pleased with how SASB has performed and the uh, the take-up in the industry. I mean, effectively, it was a start-up and, and now it's uh, uh, widely used by investors and managers and, and obviously the corporate world. So how does that feel? It feels pretty good, uh, but I think it reflects a lot of hard work by a lot of people. And I think it reflects two things. Uh, in addition to that hard work, it reflects that the SASB framework is actually useful and meets a market need at a very specific point in time, which is just at the moment where investors are really sincerely working to integrate ESG in a rigorous and scalable way. The SASB standards are a useful tool to do that. So I think we the standards are meeting a real market need at this point in time. I think it's also a tribute to all of the people who have provided so much input and feedback on the standards through the years. And I really want to acknowledge that the standards are not only the work of the SASB team, because we are committed to a consultative process for standards development, there have been hundreds of people who have provided input to the standards through the years on both the company from both companies and from investors. And we can't thank those people enough. And I think that the traction the SASB standards have in the marketplace is a reflection of the quality and the hard work of hundreds of people, not just the SASB team. Well, that feels good too, to be a a community effort. And and we started this conversation with saying your local community is coming together. And and I think uh, SASB is a reflection of the sort of global investor community and what can actually be achieved. Finally, Janine, with travel restrictions in place and physical distancing having an impact on in-person interactions in business, it's likely that people will have more time on their hands. So where, where do you think they should be focusing their time and, and do you have any recommended reading or uh, any other uh, tips for how people should be uh, using their time at the moment? Well, I am using most of my time for working. I'm finding that working from home is just as busy and challenging as working from an office. Uh, But I do hope to get to read more books. And I have pulled one book out of my huge stack of unread books that a friend recommended to me several years ago called Against the Gods, The Remarkable Story of Risk. And it certainly seems like a timely moment to read this book. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, Janine, you've been very generous with your time. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much, Amanda. Take care. Thank you.